This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Maybe you missed the news. Tuesday, there were Democratic primaries in Florida, Illinois, and Arizona. For our analysis, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and his new book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, will be out on May 5th. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John, and I promise uh, when we're through all this, I'm bringing my book tour right to your door in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Before we talk about the primaries that happened Tuesday and, and the one that didn't, I have to ask you about the senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson who's now saying that paid sick leave for people with the coronavirus will make workers lazy. He's opposing the House bill that provides for paid sick leave, which he says is, quote, incentivizing people not to show up for work. You have to think this thing through, he said. That is a quote. Remind us, who is Ron Johnson and why is he saying these terrible things? Ron Johnson is someone who has very rarely, if ever, thought anything through. Um, (laughs) He is a, he is, he is not held up as the intellectual giant of the Senate um, (laughs) or of Washington. And that's, that's a, that's of course a field in which there's a lot of competition. Um, And he is the classic embodiment of the businessman who goes into politics and thinks he can, quote unquote, apply the principles of business to politics. Uh, The reality is he's a very wealthy guy who's part of a family business um, that uh, has allowed him to, you know, kind of noodle around in politics. And it happened he used his own money or portion of it uh, to put himself in a position where he could win a Senate seat in one very Republican cycle, 2010, and then retain it in uh, the very turbulent cycle of 2016. Uh, but the thing to understand about him is he is, he's not a Donald Trump Republican, although he's been exceptionally, almost absurdly loyal to the president, especially uh, during the whole UK, Ukraine controversy. Um, he literally is sort of a, a, an on-round obsessive, um, and that puts him at the fringe even of the Republican Party, in most cases, you would just laugh at him or you know, be offended by him. But at this point, what he is saying is, is genuinely destructive because he is talking about people who are being told by their president, by their governors, by mayors across this country that they need to, they need to stay home. Uh, they need not to be in workplaces where it's possible the virus could spread. Uh, My neighbor in Wisconsin uh, is a bartender and uh, she lost her her work last night. They closed the bars in Wisconsin last night. And the notion that that we're in some sort of situation where she was incentivized, uh, you know, by some government, small government grant that might keep her whole for a, a few weeks, not to work. It's not just stupid. It's cruel. Excellent. 
Well, let's talk about the primaries on Tuesday, and let's start with the one that was supposed to be held that was postponed because of the coronavirus, Ohio. The postponement didn't go that well. It had its own political drama, which I think a lot of people might have missed. It was unbelievable. Voting rights specialists, people who've watched this stuff for years and really, you know, have a lot of experience, have watched it in some some very chaotic situations and very horrible circumstances, said this this beat all. It was it was almost incomprehensibly messed up. And we can talk more deeply about the concept of postponing and delaying, which yeah. is is one that we don't like, but we can also understand here. So it's not it's not just to be upset with the postponement. It is how this government or, or this governor, Mike DeWine, did it. He, he waited until the afternoon before the primary. And then he said, well, I, you know, I think we probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to ask a judge. And the judge, you know, reviewed it and said, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, don't do it because things are already, the, the wheels are already turning. Um, and again, you may disagree with the judge. The judge may have been wrong, but you got that ruling. And so then Mike DeWine, who obviously was assuming the judge would side with him, turned around an hour or so later and has his, you know, health administrator, a state employee, declare it's a public health problem. And so they shut the primary down anyway. Then, you know, candidates who were on the ballot, a candidate who was on the ballot, moved an urgent court action. This is literally late night on the eve of the voting appealed it to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court reviewed it and very quickly came down with a ruling on the morning of Election Day saying that you could delay the election. So you had this incredible chaos, and voters have got a lot of things on their mind right now. There's a yeah. lot going on. And so yeah. people who really wanted to go vote or who were thinking about it, whatever, you know, suddenly they're hit with this just chaos. So this was done in exactly the wrong way. No matter what you think about postponement, it was just done precisely wrong. And then let's talk about the primaries that did happen. How did the virus affect the voting in, the, in Arizona, in Illinois, in Florida? A lot. It, it was different in different places. Now, here's where we start to get real important measures on how we might approach these things going forward. In Arizona and Florida, they have a lot of early voting and a lot of mail voting. And as a result, uh, they got a lot of ballots in before things started to really, you know, spiral out of control. And frankly, before, even as things were getting rougher, because people who had a mail ballot were able to fill it out, get it in. Um, You also had some heroic uh, election officials in Arizona who, you know, went to the Matt trying to make sure this thing would work. And so high marks to them. But it was still a lot of complaints in both states and uh, situations where people couldn't find polling places that had closed, people, uh, poll workers who (laughs) had been told that you shouldn't be going out in crowds decided not to go out in crowds. And so they didn't have enough poll workers. The biggest problems were in Illinois. They also have some structures for absentee voting, things like that. But, but still much more of a tradition of in-person voting. And uh, it was just a mess. Uh, They had situations where poll workers did not show up. And literally, people came to polling places that just had a sign that said nobody showed up. They had circumstances where 
uh, election officials in Chicago were literally saying, you know, as you went into as the, as the polls were opening, hey, if, if you can be an election clerk, we'll swear you in right there. And then as you went into the day, there were complaints from all over from poll workers who were saying, look, we don't have the, the equipment we need. We don't have the materials we need. They actually kept the polls open for quite a while in sh- longer in Chicago uh, because uh, they were you know, struggling to, to, to make this thing work. So problems are real. We need to have elections. What is to be done? Yeah, that's the core question. And we're really in uncharted territory. I did a piece for the magazine this week where I talked to a, a lot of the best people, I would argue, in the country on these issues. Folks like Congressman Jamie Raskin and Dale Ho from uh, the ACLU and, and, and folks from the Brennan Center. And, you know, look, they were all nuanced and, and reasonable and they understood the complexity of the moment we're in. Uh, but at, at a certain point, they came down to sort of two basic conclusions. One, postponement of a regularly scheduled election is something we should never be casual about because regularly scheduled elections are sort of a, a, a core underpinning of our democracy. So that's something you do as a last choice. And if you can find ways to avoid a postponement or a delay, that's great. That's that's superb. And if you've got time, the best way to do it is to implement uh, a combination of interventions, which are, first and foremost, no excuses, absentee voting. Second, a huge infrastructure for mail voting, i.e. you mail the ballots to the people, they can mail them back. And then probably a little bit of flexibility for some maintenance of in-person voting, but in a very, very well-structured model, probably with a lot of early voting. And that's for folks who, for whatever reason, still go that way. But the, the heart of it is the, the mail voting. And here's the fascinating thing, John. The state of Washington, which was the early epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak around, you know, in the Kirkland area, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they ran a whole election after the state of emergency had been declared at, at a point when businesses were telling people not to come in to work, when some schools were starting to shut down. You understand that in Washington state, they were way ahead of where a lot of the, other, the rest of the country is on the, the, the concern about the spread of this virus. And yet they conducted a whole election uh, successfully with actually a, a very good turnout. And the reason for that is because they have all mail voting. So when mm-hmm. you do it all by mail, it, it functions. So the message here is be like Washington state, but a lot of states are not like Washington state. Exactly. Some states are not up to speed. Some of them actually have rules and laws that make it very, very hard uh, to do early voting, absentee voting, a lot of other things. Some have sort of a little bit of vote by mail, but not a sufficient infrastructure for it. A lot of them are very stressed as regards resources. And the bottom line is they now are getting incredibly conflicting messages, right? Don't have 50 people, don't have 10 people in a space, but then have a mass turnout election. And so are we going to have postponements? Whether you like it or not, the answer is yes. And that is that then takes us to a next stage of this. Uh, and that is we need to have protocols and procedures for how we maintain the primaries. Uh, and then we ought to take all of this, put it in a box, pause, take a deep breath, and recognize that while you can have some 
flexibility as regards primary dates. You can move them. They have been moved. That does happen. The November election, you can't, you can't have an option of delaying it, of, of postponing it. That's, that is incredibly damaging. And so what we need to do right now is take the advice of Ron Wyden, the senator from Oregon, and some other members uh, who have a bill in Congress right now, and the variations between the Senate and the House, but basically the same thing, that would really push toward vote by mail, give the states the resources to do it, and make this thing work. Um, we are not, in my opinion, in a position where we're going to see an election postponed or delayed. That's not what I would imagine would happen. But what I could imagine happening is that it would if we had a lingering virus problem, hopefully not, or a situation where the virus eased in the summer but then returned in the fall, hopefully not. But if by chance something like that happened, we could end up with a very low turnout election that is, is just a completely unacceptable circumstance. Just a quick two more minutes. The outcome of the election was that Bernie lost pretty decisively in all the states that voted on Tuesday. What's left for Bernie at this point? Bernie Sanders has said, in conjunction with his campaign, that they're going to assess uh, how to go forward, and they're going to do it in consultation with their supporters. That is a classic Bernie Sanders approach. This is... You know, he has a slogan for his campaign, not me, us. Yeah. And that really is where he's at. He is a movement political figure. Uh, it's, it's how he thinks about it. And so you're going to see a lot of consultation. You're going to see a lot of listening to his supporters. And frankly, um, you'll probably see some push and pull. You know, some people who really want him to go forward, some people who think that, that it's just, you know, it's just not a doable thing. Um, it's all going to be run against the reality of this, uh, you know, coronavirus outbreak, all the responses to it, and the chance that things could get worse before they get better. Um, that's going to create a lot of pressure on him. Uh, I can tell you as somebody who's interviewed him a lot, who's been around him a lot, he's somebody who can handle that pressure. He will work his way through it. He will talk to a lot of people, and he will figure out an approach. And what it will be, I can't tell you, because right now, John, if you're making predictions about anything, you know, be it healthcare, economics, or politics, uh, you're a much braver person than I. But I do want to emphasize that that for Sanders, this really is a, a a not me us moment, and he'll think about that on a lot of levels and make a decision that that I would expect, you know, whether he continues his candidacy or suspends. But I would suspect still aims in a big way at influencing the platform of the party, its trajectory forward. Uh, so for those who don't like Bernie Sanders, I would have a message. I would not presume for a second that he's going away. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.